Gadadhar Pandit Das spent 15 years as a practicing monk in New York City. He details his experiences in a book called Urban Monk, but Pandit has since left the monastery he called home on Manhattan's Lower East Side. He's now devoting his life to helping others de-stress as a meditation teacher, inspirational speaker, and well-being expert. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Pondit was first on the show in June of 2014 to talk about life as a monk in the Big Apple. He's back to share what life is like for him in his new role outside of the monastery. Pondit, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Now, last time you were on the show, you were wearing a much different kind of outfit. (laughs) Yes. When I was here about a year and a half ago or so, uh, I was still a practicing monk at that time. I had been a monk um, for about 15 years. And in December of 2014, I graduated or I transitioned out of the monastic path. And now I'm basically pursuing um, bringing mindfulness and meditation into the corporate environment uh, and to college students. It's similar to what I was doing as a monk because I was always teaching students and others to meditate, to live in a healthy way, in a positive way. But now um, it's more into the corporate environment along with the college campuses. So what inspired that transition from the monastic life? Well, the transition from the monastic came because, I mean, it was multiple reasons. In our monastic path, as I think of many monastic paths, it's not a lifelong commitment. You know, you can transition out when you feel like you need to transition out. A lot of um, times I like to just compare a monastic setting to a college You go, you learn for a few years, and then you apply what you've learned into the world. So, you know, I was ready for another transition. A lot of other monks had transitioned out, and I wanted to be able to reach broader audiences with this message of meditation, mindfulness, being aware of your mind and how really a lot of our stress comes from our mind. We generate the stress. It may not be so much from the people or the environment around us. So I wanted to be able to share this with with people Because I feel like if we can learn about the mind, then we can really take control of how much stress we experience every day. And I thought that this transition would help me reach out to greater audiences, and actually it has. Is this particularly important in a city like New York? Just how stressed are we? Uh, I think it's probably more relevant and important here than pretty much any other place. I mean, I think just living in New York, I think I'm guessing the average New Yorker on just a calm a uh, normal day probably has more stress than most people around the world. Just running around and there's so much going on. So you're living with so many people and of so many different backgrounds. Uh, and on top of that, we have so many ambitions and goals and work responsibilities and family responsibilities. Juggling all of that can be a very overwhelming experience. And so I think that uh, a healthy meditation practice can really help us balance all that. Yeah, so just how do you focus on mindfulness in a city like New York when you're running just to catch the subway to get to work on time? Well, you can run mindfully. (laughs) (laughs) You can uh, engage with the people around you in a mindful way, um, not pushing everybody out of the way to get onto the subway. Uh, That's also mindfulness, being just thoughtful about that there's other people that you're sharing the space with and to be perhaps giving up your seat for someone else. That's also an act of mindfulness. You know, we can practice mindfulness anywhere and everywhere. Uh, You can be living in a very suburban or rural environment and be 
not mindful. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think New York just gives us many more opportunities each day to practice mindfulness. But how do you get into that zone if that's not who you are? If you're someone who does run on drama, if you will. Yeah, I think it's um, a matter of practice. Um, you know, we be- we develop mindfulness through meditation practices of breathing and focusing, taking time out. I'd like to think the ideal time to do it is before our day gets started, if that's possible. Some For some, that may not be possible, and then you meditate any time during the day. But it's kind of like it's said that breakfast is the most important meal for the body right, of the day. So I'd like to think that, well, if we're feeding the body before we start working, what about our mind? Are we giving something to our mind before we start the day? Because if our mind is not in a healthy space, or if it's angry or upset or disturbed before we leave the house, you can be sure that every interaction we have with others uh, is going to be affected by the state of our mind. And if we leave our mind, if we leave our house in the morning with an undernourished mind, then we're already getting off on the wrong foot with pretty much everyone. Whereas if we're able to find even five minutes in the morning, breathe deeply, Try not to plan too much. Try not to think about the past. Just breathe and focus on the present moment for five minutes before we leave the day. That kind of sets the tone, I feel, for many things that are going to happen, unpredictable things, maybe challenges, difficulties that might come up or whatever may come up. I feel like that five or ten minutes will give us the nourishment for our mind to really have a more positive interaction with the world around us as we go throughout our day. So you said focus on the moment. Don't be thinking about all the things you need to get done that day during that deep breathing. Yeah, because the past we have no control over, and the mind vacillates. It goes it goes from the past, or it's in planning the future, or it gets stuck in the past again from something that happened, or it goes to the future. But the past is done. We have no control over that. The future, we also don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The only thing we have control over is the present. And that's the moment that we miss all the time. The thing that we actually have some say over or control over is the moment we don't take advantage of. So if we can train the mind to be focused in the present moment, that will help us stay in the present moment throughout all our activities. So that means when you're at work or you're at school and you're trying to study or you're trying to stay focused during that meeting, Monday morning company meeting, because you've trained your mind to be in the present, it'll be a little easier to stay in the present because you already taught your mind how to do that before you left home or maybe you did it on the bus or you did it on the train. But it will help us become more focused. And naturally, if we're more focused, we'll be more productive. So here we are at the office And someone does something to get us aggravated. How do we keep that under control? So, again, if we've started the day with some meditation, great. And if, let's say, you get into an argument with someone, you know, one thing that mindfulness helps us understand is to get in touch with our emotions and how we're feeling. So if we got upset, that could be a moment to take a deep breath and really analyze the situation and understand why is it that that interaction went the way it did? And how did that interaction make me feel? As opposed to just thinking negatively about the person we interacted with. So let's put them on the side for a moment. Let's just take them out of the equation. And now let's look at ourselves. How did I get into that situation? Why did I allow that person to frustrate me? 
because they frustrated me, but there was something that I got frustrated by. What was the thing that I got frustrated by? They said something that I didn't like. Why didn't I like that? Why wasn't I able to see what they said? Maybe it was the way they said it. Okay, they might have not said it in the nicest way, but it was still my choice to be frustrated by their own anger or frustration. I could choose not to let them affect me in such a deep way. That's hard. It's easier said than done. But just to understand how much we get affected by others is kind of up to us because that we control. We can't control someone else's tone or behavior. All we can really control is how we respond to that. Even when it comes to someone cutting us off on the highway, right? Exactly. You know, it doesn't mean that now we should uh, go into a road rage mentality, cut in front of them, because when we go that route, it only leads, leads to something negative and perhaps violent and hurtful. We can choose to cut that off right in that moment and say, okay, this person did this. I'm not going to become like this person because if we retaliate in that way, we're becoming exactly like that person. The same anger and frustration or mindlessness that they had behind that action. Now we're adopting all of that by giving them power over us. Their actions are controlling us. And so this is one important thing when something does happen at the office or in personal life to understand that, okay, I'm being affected not because of their own their behavior, but I'm allowing myself to be affected uh, and I can choose n to reduce the frustration I'm feeling if I want to. That's up to me and my mind. Think, don't react. Exactly. Breathe, think, and don't react. I would imagine the same is true when it comes to electronic communication. You get an email, you get a little perturbed by what someone said in that email. Your first instinct might be, okay, let me type something back, hit send real quick. Yeah, I like to think that I think before you hit send because uh, the, the worst thing you can do is respond right away. Unless it's super time sensitive, somebody sends an email where you're being blamed or accused or criticized, you know, read it, take a deep breath and just don't do anything with it. You know, if you can wait a day or two or three, even look at it objectively, like is there some genuine constructive criticism in here through which I can grow? And then gradually compile your message. Uh, if you feel there was some, something, even a trace of genuine feedback in there, then you can even express some thanks to the person. Change your whole mood. Let's not be so defensive. See, the problem is we let our ego get in the way too often. The moment our ego gets in the way, we're going to end up in a negative situation. We're going to end up fighting, retaliating, criticizing. And that's not going to lead to a better relationship that's not going to lead to better emotional or mental health because that just leads us to anger and frustration and depression. So ego, letting our ego get in the way, it's going to get us into all kinds of problems. We're going to hurt relationships. We're going to burn bridges. So the main thing is if we can distance ourselves from that email communication that came in, which we weren't expecting on a Monday morning, or it was, it's the middle of the night, you went up to get, go to use the bathroom or get a drink of water and you checked your message, which mm -hmm. is the wrong thing to do. Don't sleep with your... Guilty check. of that. We Guilty all of are. That, yeah. I've done it too. <laughs> you know? And you read that email. Now you can't sleep the rest of the night. But give yourself a day or two or three before you really respond to that. Think it through so that you can respond in a cool and somewhat objective manner.
I know you've worked with Google, with other corporations. When corporations bring you in, what are they primarily looking to achieve with their staff? They're looking to see how I can help their staff reduce the stress because all of these, most of these corporations are very high-stress environments where people are working 10, 12 hours a day. They're taking work home with them. It's overtime. It's weekends. It's a ton of stress, plus they're balancing their personal lives. So they're hoping that I can re- help their employees reduce their stress levels because we know that stress is costing the American industries about $300 billion a year in things like employee turnover, absenteeism, legal, medical, and insurance costs, So, and plus all kinds of head, neck, back injuries from sitting at your computer so long and all that stress. So they're realizing that uh, this is not a sustainable model, and they need to do something to help their employees be healthier so that they can be more productive. An employee who's not healthy is going to call out sick, is going to, not going to want to be there. And even if they're there, how much work are they going to do if they're unhappy and unhealthy? So meditation is such a simple, in one sense, an easy way to help people reduce that stress so they can be more focused and they can be more productive. And ultimately, that's what the corporations are hoping that I'm able to do. And the feedback has been incredible where people are reporting that their energy level has gone up, they're relating with their colleagues a little bit better, they're feeling more relaxed and more productive. And this is not just anecdotal. You have science to back up the benefits of meditation, right? Yes, there's uh, research being done by several institutions. MIT News published something that said that... uh, Christopher Moore, an MIT neuroscientist, said that meditation training is, makes you more uh, better at focusing. There was an article in Forbes magazine that said meditation can make you more productive. Uh, Psychology Today said that it can help you reduce stress and depression and anxiety. So that's what makes it easy to uh, makes it easy for me to talk about. Uh, meditation is because of all of this research. Otherwise, people might get hung up on the thought or the idea that, oh, it's some kind of spiritual thing coming from the East. It was, and it still is for a lot of people, but it's providing to be some some very uh, useful tool for everyone just to reduce their stress levels without having to get into all the spiritual stuff. Is it sometimes hard to get buy-in when you go into a corporation and you're looking out at that audience? Do you sometimes see people who are obviously a little bit cautious about what you're trying to present to them? You can see some of those faces there, but I think that those who are there are kind of open to it. Usually I feel like the people, because it's voluntary, whoever shows up. So for the most part, I think people are coming to learn with a, a, a fairly open mind. I'm For most of the lectures and seminars and workshops I've done, they've been completely voluntary. You know, people can come in if they want to. So those who want to be there are there. And You know, some might have a a healthy level of skepticism, even though they want to be there. And the research and all the, you know, the prominent personalities out there now, CEOs and professional athletes that are meditating. When I present all of that research along with information about all the people that are meditating, people seem to relax and, you know, drop their guard and are ready to have that experience. And as soon as they are, they're just so grateful that they can even do 10 minutes of meditation can help them so much. They find it it's really surprising that 5 or 10 minutes can be so helpful. Something so simple can be so helpful. Do you remember life before you started meditating? Yes, I do. I mean, I've been meditating a good portion of my life to some degree on and off, but yes, I do. I and do. how different of a person do you think you are now compared to then? My gosh, it's like a day and night difference. You know, before my life was only centered around 
accumulating things and being popular and just just having things and having money. Now, it's not that having things isn't important, but it's not the most important thing. You know, I'm realizing that my meditation that relationships are very important, A, a proper balance in your emotional, physical, mental and spiritual well-being is very, very important. Before, I didn't really consider all of that. I just thought if you had stuff and popularity, that's the goal of life. And you did have stuff and popularity when you were growing up. You grew up in L.A., right? Grew up in L.A. My parents had a multi-million dollar jewelry business. I had a brand new car at the age of 16. Uh, our, from our, We had a house on the hill, and from the jacuzzi, you could see all of downtown L.A. So I had a lot of stuff. But, you know, it's interesting that um, looking back, and looking at myself now, I'm actually, on a deeper level, more satisfied now when I don't have all of that money. But, but my meditation practice, I feel more satisfied and deeply nourished now than I did at that time. So what prompted you to give up that lifestyle for a monastic lifestyle? Well, my parents lost their multi-million dollar jewelry business in the early 90s. And that just basically, it was like having the rug pulled out from under me. My life went into a bit of a spin. I was really trying to figure out that what am I supposed to do now? You know, my journey took me from there after we lost everything to post-communist Bulgaria for a couple of years. We came back to the U.S., to the East Coast. I was really on an inward journey at that point because I could see how turbulent my life had become from having everything very predictable and comfortable to losing everything and becoming really uncomfortable and questioning the purpose and meaning of life and where I was going to end up in the future, that that sparked an inward journey that led me to a monastery in Mumbai in 1999, uh, Mumbai, India. And I, when I first went there, I didn't even plan that I would actually end up spending the next 15 years in a monastery. I actually went there with the idea of being there just for one month, no more. And the idea wasn't even to become a monk. It was a retreat for me, a meditation, vacation, retreat, just to kind of clear my mind and clear my head of everything that's happened. That turned into six months. Six months turned and I came back to the U.S., moved into a monastery in New York, spent another six months or a year. Then I said, well, let me just go for it and see what happens. And before I knew it, 15 years had gone by and incredible, beautiful, wonderful journey that I learned and grew and matured so much. And it really, during that whole time, it gave me a chance to work with so many people, college students, even corporate professionals, and really help them in understanding, really, the purpose of life and understand the nature of our mind and how powerful a tool our mind can be. If we train our mind and nourish our mind properly, it can become our best friend. And if we don't, it could actually become our worst enemy. Why New York? I'm sure you could have settled anywhere in the United States when you came back here. Well, my parents just moved here from Bulgaria to the East Coast, to Jersey, and they started a business here. So I was going back and forth between New York and New Jersey. I met some monks here. And so after my six months in India, I just it was a natural place to come to was come back to New York because my folks were here and the other people that I'd met here who were also on a spiritual path were here. So it just seemed like the natural choice kind of. And the monastery where you lived was based on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, right? Correct, yep. Lower East Side of Manhattan, of all places, right? What was that experience like, being a monk on the Lower East Side? Well, it's it's such an interesting place to be in because right across from us is a funeral home. Right next to us is a, a radio station and there's a subway station, a laundromat. 
it seems like in one sense the perfect fit because anything and everything you can imagine is on the Lower East Side. It's obviously a very busy environment. There's a lot going on. You know, I live right on First Avenue, which means there's a constant flow of cars, buses, trucks, ambulances, because we've got hospitals on First Avenue, so all the ambulances are driving right by our building constantly. So how does one meditate through all that? Uh, well, that's the wonderful thing. If you can learn to meditate through that, then you can meditate through anything in life, right? So because... You know, the the loudest noises aren't from the streets or the people. The loudest noises exist in our head, in our mind. The, our mind is a ch- machine of noises and thoughts and experiences that is going 24-7, right? So it's much louder than anything outside of us. And that's one important thing to understand is that if we can quiet this machine in our head, or at least calm it for a little bit, or even focus it for a little bit, then that's going to help us deal with Then Dealing with all the outside stuff will actually be quite easy. So pardon my ignorance. So when you're a monk and you live in a monastery in New York City, are your expenses paid like a priest in a church? Yes, correct. They are. So then you decide to go out on your own. That's a pretty big decision. <laughs> Yeah, it is a pretty big decision, and it's an exciting one. Uh, I do feel really fortunate and grateful that I can do the exact same work pretty much that I did as a monk, Um, you know, talking about meditation, helping people to meditate. Opportunities came through different individuals who I'd known who were working in corporations. They invited me. The response was great. They invited me back, and it opened up doors for other places from my book, Urban Monk. That also uh, gave me opportunity to speak in other corporations. So all transitions in life are a little scary because you just don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I've seen that in my life, I've been through some pretty serious transitions. And by, you know, um, grace, I would say that things have worked out pretty well. So I'm just kind of excited to see what the future holds And I'm really hoping that I can work with a lot more people in the corporate environment, uh, in media, in the athletic communities, and really just help individuals, you know, get a better grasp on their mind, reduce their stress, stay focused on the present moment, just come to a healthier space so that you can do whatever you're doing professionally or personally in a much more powerful and healthier way so that ultimately we can be happier. And if our mind is not our friend, then we can't really be happy no matter how much we have. But if our mind can be our friend and properly trained and nourished, if we can work out our mind in a nice and positive way, then we can be healthy and happy even if we don't have everything that we want. Now, as a monk, you also had to live a celibate lifestyle, right? Yes, correct. You no longer have to do that, and I understand you are now engaged. I am now engaged. After 15 years of being a monk, I am engaged. I've been engaged now. Uh, for about three or four months or so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've met a wonderful person and uh, who also does a lot of med- She does a lot of meditation, almost as much as I do. And she's a very mindful person, very much into a healthy living. So I feel really grateful that, uh, you know, I'm making this transition. I have somebody to make this transition with now. Did you meet her while you were still a monk? She was, uh, yes, she was coming around to the uh, monastery while I was there. Yeah, so she was coming to the monastery. We did meet while I was still a monk, but we didn't connect in a relationship manner until I transitioned out of the monastery. Are people surprised that you decided to 
give up your life as a monk? A lot of people are. I think because one conception people have is that a monk means that it's like a lifelong commitment. Yeah, you I know? think people think of a priest too. It's like, oh, what? You're leaving the church? Yeah. Similar way, right? Yeah, so a lot of people were surprised. They said, oh, wow, we thought you were going to do this forever. I said, yeah, I actually never took a formal vow. If we have the option to take the formal vow or not take the formal vow. Because I saw a majority of monks do leave, I'm like, well, I never expected to be a monk. I don't know when I'll, when I'll not want to be a monk anymore. So I just never took those formal vows. So I kept that door open for me. I just took it one year at a time. And when I felt like it was, I was ready to move on, I could make that transition. But yes, even... Uh, but people don't know about the technicalities. Oh, there's a formal vow. There isn't a formal vow. Right. see you're a monk, and that mm-hmm. means forever. But yes. And I would think there's misconception there. People think you're giving up your faith as well. You're giving it up. Yeah, and that's not the case at all. You know, so um, I'm giving up a specific status or, yes, a status in one sense, a lifestyle. But all the practices that go with that lifestyle, I do everything pretty much. You know, like I get up and meditate. I still meditate. A couple hours uh, a day, which kind of scares people sometimes. Two hours. I'm like, okay, it's all right. And where do you squeeze that in? What time of day do you meditate? Usually the morning. Uh, You know, I do most of it, a good chunk of it in the morning. And then I'll try to squeeze it in the afternoon or the evening. You know, so there's no real hard and fast rule. But I feel like the morning is the best time because once I do it in the morning, then the rest of the day is a little easier to manage, I feel, because my mind has been sufficiently nourished. And just like before I came here, I meditated for a good like hour and a half. You know, you just have to get up earlier, sleep a little bit earlier. And, you know, it's such a powerful way to start the day. I think last time you were on the show, you said you got up at around four o'clock when you were a monk. Are you still getting up that early? I'm not getting up that early because a lot of times the events I do, the lectures or the workshops I'm doing sometimes end in the evening. And then, you know, you got to do the whole networking thing. Uh, So sometimes that goes a little later. So the four o'clock thing is not so feasible now. It's more like around 530 or six, which I... Oh, really pushing it there, (laughs) Pondit, really pushing it. For me, it kind of is actually, you know, because for 15 years I woke up so early. For me, it's now like my my body is kind of geared to naturally just get up at 5 or 5.30. I just end up waking up. And then I try to fall back asleep if I need to. But it's just programmed almost to wake up. Uh, So, yeah, I try to do most of it in the morning if I can. When you look back on those 15 years as a monk in New York City, what would you say is the biggest lesson you learned from that experience? Uh, The biggest lesson that I've learned, I think there's so many really humongous lessons that I've learned. Um, One is that, you know, if... Because during that time, I had a chance to really do a lot of service, you know, just a lot of service, no expectations, that if we can take time out to serve others selflessly, that we don't have to worry that we're going to lose out and miss out on something. And that selfless service really goes a long way. And one of the biggest things it does, it helps us develop our character in such a powerful way to just, you know, like, usually it's like, okay, I'm going to do this and what am I going to get in return? But what about just selflessly doing something for someone? Imagine that even doing that in a corporate setting. Imagine how wonderfully that could positively change the environment of a corporation or even in a family, selflessly serving others. That's what a family is supposed to be. So that was one thing that I really learned is that serving others is uh, a really truly a way to be happy, you know, and to find time to be able to do that. And not always expect something in return. Because know that if you're giving to others, 
the universe will give back to you and just to be peaceful and happy about that. So let's get Pondit's top three. I think you probably already hit on them. But if we had to get Pondit's top three ways to live a peaceful life in New York City, what are those top three? Well, number one would be try to meditate every day for at least five minutes. I'm not going to say 20, 30 minutes. Start with five minutes. Start if you can in the morning. If not, do it any time during the day. And Go to your conference room. Go for a little walk uh, and meditate for five minutes a day. Try to be flexible so that when things don't go the way you expect them to, accept that that's what's meant to happen. You know, If we can do that, we'll reduce the amount of stress that we feel. Another thing, I guess the third thing, there's so many things coming to mind, is really work on your relationships. You know, Maintaining good and decent relationships is a lot of work. It's, we get so busy, so caught up, we forget to maintain our relationship. Really, let's take time out to maintain our relationships that we have with our, in our personal life and our professional life as well. Maintain those relationships and cultivate new ones. And really take time out to be there for your friends and family because during the most difficult and stressful times, they're the ones that are going to be there to support us in ways that no one else can. So it's really, really important that we not forget about those important relationships in our life. Fonda, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, George. Gadadhar Pandit Das is a former monk, now working as a meditation teacher, inspirational speaker, and well-being expert. Learn more at ConsciousLivingNYC.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Never miss an episode of the show by downloading our podcast on iTunes. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. Thanks for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.